Um, let's say the prayer of the first hour. O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. So, this week we are um, scheduled to discuss the chapter uh, concerning Greek philosophy. Um, this essay was written by St. Nectarios um, while he was director of the Rizarios School in Athens. And the footnote actually in 1896. And the footnote actually uh, indicates the inscription of the saint um, regarding this essay. Uh, by this study and the process of arranging the materials I had collected, I find myself persuaded that the wise men of Greece come to a greater, others, some to a greater, others to a lesser extent, were teachers of truth, that they were lovers of said truth and sought after it, and that this love of the knowledge of truth led them to, the, to true philosophy. Little by little, it led the Greek nation to clearer knowledge of the truth and ultimately to that truth which is revealed. And this is essentially the, the summary. Um, uh, but this chapter on Greek philosophy is as much on philosophy as it is on Greeks. For the people around him, he cares for uh, he ha for the people that are immediately before him. When our Lord tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, what he really means is our neighbor, the person right in front of us, the person next door to us. And what modern modern philosophies often do is they get ahead of themselves, and they say that. Well, you know, we have to love people on the other side of the planet. And we have to uh, support them economically. We have to have open borders. This, this is the latest version of this. We have to have open borders and let them into our countries. Uh, and, and it's a matter of justice, so on and so forth. And the same people hate the, hate the people in front of them. They hate their, their fellow citizens. Uh, that uh, surround them, the people that they live amongst. And so, just like St. John, the theologian says, how can you love God whom you don't see if you don't love the people you do see? It also holds that how can you love the people whom you don't see if you don't love the people you do see? Right? And so the saints, of course, uh, were realists. Uh, Metropolitan Demetrius says that Orthodoxy is the religion of reality. They're realists. They're right there. They're in the midst of the people. And it's the people in front of them that they, that they care for. Not that they 
they don't love, they don't care for anyone else, but they recognize that divine providence, God himself, has placed them in a particular place, at a particular time, among particular people, and they must care for them. And at the same time, so St. Nectarios is amongst Greeks, he's in Athens, he's training future priests because the Rizarios school is a seminary. Um, at the same time, I think we have to see St. Nectarios when he says here as both a, a, a theology of history and a moral exhortation. Because our faith is a historical faith. The things that we believe in actually happened. The Israelites were an actual nation, right? And they, they, they went through a whole historical process. Abraham, Isaac, uh, the other patriarchs, Moses, David, were historical people. And this is emphasized in the Gospels where we have the genealogies the genealogy of Christ, right? Um, and, and that's a demonstration that Christ is descended from real people. He's really human. By extension, history matters. History is very important. Uh, because history is the story of God's salvation of mankind. It's also the story of man's falling away from God and his return to God. It's, a, it's the story also of the struggle against sin. All these stories are all really one story. And so history has meaning. The Orthodox are not, um, Orthodoxy does not teach that history is random events, that things, the history does not have meaning. Nor does it teach that history is determined. In, in a way that, let's say, Marxism or, or the Hegel uh, argue that there's this determinism uh, in history. Uh, the whole phrase being on the wrong side of history presupposes a determination in history, right? Uh, history is the work of free individuals, but these free, indivi free human beings, rather, and these free human beings are under the same warfare, spiritual warfare, and also, they are also the object of God's love. And that's the story of history. Um, so history matters. And so we have a theology of history here, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. But we also have moral exhortation, because remember, orthodoxy is about orthopraxy as well. Right? It's not enough just to believe correctly. We must also act correctly, act in an orthodox manner. Right, um, in following the commandments of Christ, because our Lord gave us commandments our, that that replaced the law of the Old Testament, and are more powerful than the law of the Old, Old Testament, uh, and they return us back to our ancient dignity and our ancient nobility. But from there, those laws, those commandments, rather, send us even further beyond their ancient nobility, the ancient nobility being the nobility of Adam and Eve in the way that they were originally created, 
and allow us to ascend to union with God. They are the means of ascent, these commands. And so uh, morality and ethics are tied to this. This this is exactly what the Orthodox teach, is the essence of Orthodox moral teaching and Orthodox ethics. And so St. Nectarios, like every saint, uh, being in his place, in a particular place at a particular time, amongst particular people, is exhorting. An exhortation is an encouragement, right? It's persuasion for, to, for um, people to do the good. He's among the Greeks, and he's preaching to the Greeks, and through the example of their ancestors, he's exhorting them towards the good. Right? He's a, he, it's an exhortation for them to emulate their ancestors, this is the purpose of, one of the purposes of studying history is to find exemplars for emulation, right? So he starts with a discussion of, um, of Greek philosophy and what Greek philosophy is, right? Uh, what it contains. And St. Nectarios knows the history of Greek philosophy and he knows that a number of many Greek philosophers actually had false notions. Um, but he's not talking about the false notions of ancient philosophy. For example, Plato had many lofty notions, but he also had many false notions. Uh, Plato uh, believed, for example, in the transmigration of souls. He also believed in the pre-existence of the soul before the body. He also believed in the eternity of matter. Right, that material existence is eternal, just like spiritual existence. Those are false notions. On the other hand, ancient Greek philosophers, including Plato, had some very important intuitions about human beings. This is what St. Nectarius was talking about, these intuitions. All the best things of ancient Greek philosophy separated from the errors, the intuitions and the methodology Right? The methodology. Later on in, in, in the second half of the essay, he's going to talk about Greek philosophy as um, part of the defense of the truth, not necessarily revealing the truth itself, but being a method, providing the tools for its defense. And he's talking about the, the Holy Fathers who defended the, the orthodoxy against the, the heretics using the tools of Greek philosophy. But the best ideas in Greek philosophy are the following. Right? He says, um, by Greek philosophy, so he says, Greek philosophy, only two words, but words full of great and lofty meaning. By these, the perfect notion of man is expressed within these goals of all philosophical effort. Within, within these, the goals of all philosophical effort are encapsulated. Within these, the whole body of scientific principles are contained. Within these is the spirit of civilized man expressed. Within these, the perfect image of man is depicted. Within these, the greatness of the human mind, the, the height of the, of the human intellect, the depth of ideas, the power and beauty of speech, the subtlety of thoughts, their sharpness and clarity, their power and grace. And finally, the divinity of man are confessed. Greek philosophy is the foundational principle of true civilization and learning. It is mankind's teacher who leads him to piety. This is St. thesis here. Um, Greek philosophy is the foundational principle of true civilization. 
Why should we care about civilization? And by extension, why should we care about culture? Right? St. Ectarios is very concerned about civilization and culture throughout these essays. But why should we care about it? What does it have to do with orthodoxy? Isn't orthodoxy just faith? Isn't, isn't that sufficient and necessary? Um, of course, the orthodox faith is necessary for salvation and it's sufficient for salvation. But it's not in the abstract. It's not an abstract system of ideas. It's not an ideology, in other words. It's not even a philosophy, because it's above philosophy. Right? Orthodoxy is an entire way of life, which means that it touches every aspect of our life. It means that it has an effect on everything that we do. It transforms and transfigures everything that we do. And so it affects our culture. It has to affect our culture. We cannot live an orthodox life while participating in a culture that is contrary or antithetical to orthodoxy. This is a point we have to take seriously today because our culture today is that. It's antithetical to orthodoxy. Many people have argued recently that it's even antithetical to human nature. It's an anti-human culture. If, if we can even understand that because it's been transformed and transfigured by people who are imbued with demonic energies, possessed, either possessed outright or possessed in the form of being impassioned. Whereas Orthodox civilization, Orthodox civilization is different. Orthodox civilization was transformed, was influenced and shaped by men who were imbued with divine energies, with the uncreated energies of the Holy Spirit. Right? We're talking about the Holy Fathers, the Holy Martyrs, and all the saints, and all the pious Orthodox Christians, millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, over the centuries, over the last 2,000 years, who stone by stone built up the edifice of Orthodox civilization in, its, in the variety of its expressions, because it's not just one nation that's orthodox. It's many nations that are orthodox. It's not just one region that's orthodox. It's many regions <coughs> that are orthodox. And we have this variety, this tapestry of various uh, uh, manifestations of orthodoxy that, that in, uh, um, imbue, people's everyday imbue people's everyday life. And stone by stone, rock by rock, this whole edifice was created not only by human effort, but also by the, the activity of the Holy Spirit and through the providence of the Holy Spirit. Human and divine cooperate in the church. This is how we attain our salvation, by cooperating with God. And this is how God brings salvation to the world, when he co cooperates. And when he listens to our prayers, he's cooperating with us. Right? So the cooperation of, of, divine, uh, of the divine nature and the human nature was first, uh, in a perfect way, was first manifested in our Lord, who was both man and God. It, he was one hypostasis, one person, both man and God, and both of his natures were active. 
And, and the two activities were joined together, but they were distinct at the same time, they, but they weren't confused, right? So as he, act, he acted as God, he also acted as man at the same time. And when he acted as man, he submitted his will to God, to the divine will, in the perfect way. And from there, we have the entirety of our way of life. Um, and by further extension, we have our culture and civilization, which is under attack today, which is about to disappear today. And in the previous chapter, St. Nectarius said that it's the job of the youth to preserve this, to save it by acquiring virtues. Um, he says, though, Greek philosophy is the foundational principle of true civilization, that is, orthodox civilization, because orthodox civilization wasn't created out of thin air. It was created from pre-existing parts. Obviously, we have the Judaic, right, the, the culture of the Israelites, but we also have the culture of the Greeks, because our Lord came into this world at a particular time when Greek culture had, um, uh, was predominant in the East, in the Eastern Mediterranean, even in Palestine, even in Galilee. Galilee is called the Gal Galilee of the Nations. And he spent a lot of time in a region called Decapolis. The reason, it's called Decapolis for a particular reason. There were Greek cities there. There were even Greek cities in the region of Nazareth, right? So the Greek presence uh, in, in Palestine was very strong, in, in especially in Galilee. Um, it was also at a time when many of the true believing Israelites had become Greeks by culture. Israelites by religion, Greeks by culture. In the, in the various Hellenistic cities of Alexandria and Antioch, Ephesus, so on and so forth. Um, in particular, so Greek philosophy was one of the constituent ingredients of this civilization uh, because Greek philosophy is the best thing that Greek culture, ancient Greek culture produced. Maybe, I would argue, maybe also the Greek language. <laughs> the Greek language is pretty sophisticated and it's without the Greek language, there could have been no Greek philosophy. Right? So those two things. Um, and we have to understand that God works outside of time and space. So um, it's something that we can't really, we can't really understand that. So it's, we have to understand it, but we can't understand it. The, the, it's, it it's a mystery, actually. Um, and God works through providence, divine providence, which is the, he provides for the salvation of human beings, for their eternal well-being. That's the end of divine providence. The eternal well-being of the rational creatures, the bodiless and the embodied rational creatures that he created. Right? And so in all these things of history, the various nations and the, the historical developments, we see God providing for the salvation of human beings. And thus it's not random that Greek, the Greek language, Greek culture had spread throughout the East, even into Palestine at the time that our Lord was born. It's not a random event that the Holy Apostles chose to write the Gospels and their epistles 
in the Greek language. Uh, there are historical circumstances that explain it, why, right? But those, those historical circumstances were shaped by divine providence, by God's providence. Um, and, and the Greek language, of course, is still studied today, even by non-Orthodox, in order to gain a deeper understanding of the scriptures, to look at the actual words that were written 2,000 years ago by the apostles, and to understand the nuance of those words and the original meaning, the original intent. Uh, of course, we Orthodox Christians interpret scripture according to the spirit, not according to the letter, but the spirit does not contradict the letter. It doesn't ob obliterate the letter. The letter is important. Right? And the spiritual meanings of scripture are built upon the, the literal, the, 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 the letter of scripture. Um, and so God chose and sh shaped the Greek language providentially and chose the Greek language as the vehicle. It's in the same way that he chose the Hebrew language earlier. He chose the Greek language later as the vehicle to express his, himself, to express himself. Because we say he's the word of God. And uh, the word of God is expressed in human words in the Gospels. And, and the Greek word itself, logos, is a very important term that has many dimensions. The, the translation word does not capture all the dimensions of the word, of the actual term, logos. So in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, with all of its various, in, in all of its various connotations. Um, so um, he talks about the nature of philosophy and of Greek philosophy and the form of, and the role rather of philosophy in true civilization. Um, he says, it became a teacher of truth, teaching man what he is, what is his mission, what his mission in the world is, what he ought to do, teaching him of, of God's existence, of his relationship to the divine, and God's relationship to man teaching him about the divine attributes and about the likeness shared between man and the divine. Greek philosophy taught about God's providential care for humanity and became humanity's pedagogue, teacher, leading it to Christ through its sound ideas, through its best ideas. Um, um, then in, in section two, he says, philosophy is truly the indelible possession of the Greek. This is what I was talking about earlier. The St. Nectarios is using the opportunity here to exhort the Greeks of his time. Because remember what had happened. The Greeks, of course, had converted to Christianity within the first 500 years of Christian history. The entire Greek nation had, had converted to Christianity and had led perhaps the best empire ever to have appeared, right, the Byzantine Empire, to the extent that it was an Orthodox Empire, empire um, and it set the pattern for subsequent Orthodox kingdoms and empires, right? Uh, the first Christian state, in fact, uh, among all Christian states. Um, and then because of our sins, 
because of their sins, but we let's include ourselves as well, not just blaming our ancestors. The, the, and also to protect them from heresy, God allowed the Orthodox and the Greeks in particular to come under the rule of Muslims, starting in the 600s and eventually by the 1400s. Um, the Constantinople was captured by the, by the Turks. And in those years, those centuries under the Turks, the Greeks, two things happened. One, they became influenced by the Turks. And Turkish, and some of those influences weren't bad. Um, other influences were bad, in particular, the, um, the, in particular corruption. Because the Ottoman Empire was essentially, corruption was the glue that kept the empire together. And the, um, the, the Greece, perhaps, that kept the wheels turning in the empire. Uh, and so the morals of the orth and many Orthodox Christians were influenced by that. At the same time, the, the Greeks were dazzled by the West, which was an offshoot. Right? had broken away from Orthodox uh, civilization many centuries before and was now uh, engaging in new forms of philosophy, uh, humanism, and then the scientific revolution, and uh, the age of discovery, and then the enlightenment were all very impressive. Whereas the Greeks were languishing, the Westerners were excelling in, these outward, in this outward manner. And so that affected the Greeks as well. It gave them an inferiority complex. At the same time, the simple people who kept the faith uh, were living a way of life that was higher, in fact, than the way of life of Renaissance Europe. Because Renaissance Europe was, perhaps we might say, at, at its best, it was idealistic. It, it, it held to these humane ideals. But the Orthodox were, were living a, a spiritual life, detached from world worldly cares, detached from worldly glory in particular. Um, and so that, that allowed for orthodoxy to be preserved in a pure form. And in fact, from an ideational point of view, um, the architecture and the art of that era of the 1500s, the 1600s, 1700s, the monasteries, the churches, the iconography is much more spiritual that's superior. I would even argue, in many ways, it's superior to what came before it. If we could imagine that, is anything superior to Hagia Sophia? Hagia Sophia is overwhelming to the senses. But go to Meteora, right? Or go to uh, other chapels built in the 1700s, and you'll find something different going on there. It's not overwhelming to the senses, but it's overwhelming to the soul. And so the, many Orthodox Christians did the opposite of, uh, of, of what others did, and that is they, they turned inwardly and they cultivated the soul. So we have these two contradictory uh, phenomena in the centuries after the fall of Constantinople. We have Orthodox Christians, Greek Orthodox Christians in particular, being overwhelmed by the power of the Ottomans and becoming Muslim, 
And then we have others being dazzled by the worldly power and glory and the sophistication of the West and becoming either Catholics or Protestants or just Westernized. Um, and so St. Nectarios in the 1890s is dealing with the aftermath of this and he's trying to morally encourage his students to aim for something higher, to be true to their own roots, to aim to, for something higher um, and to emulate their ancestors. And in particular, and we said this many weeks ago, that with the formation of the modern Greek state, people became very confused because the, the, the people that started the modern Greek state um, had it in mind to uproot the Greeks from the East and transplant them to the West, not physically, but psychologically and culturally, civilizationally, which created confusion. And we might even say a, a type of divided personality that um, a, a division, an internal division uh, uh, that has affected not just the Greeks, but all Orthodox Christians, starting actually with the Russians in the early 1700s, intensifying in the 1800s with, with the Greeks next, and the other Balkan Orthodox. So St. Nectarios is dealing with the aftermath of all of this and with the fragments of Orthodox civilization and the Orthodox identity that all of those catastrophes left in their, after, in, in their wake. There were more catastrophes that happened later, and those catastrophes are conti continuing today. And I'm not talking merely about World War I or World War II or the catastrophe of Asia Minor, because those are just outward. The inward catastrophes are the, the, the corruption of the soul, right? And, and the apostasy from the church, apostasy from Christ himself, ecumenism, for example, but not just ecumenism, ecumenism also the sexual revolution of the 1960s that came later. All that is in the future still, when Thaddeus is writing, is trying to put people's world back together and put their souls back together. Um, and so he, he invites them to emulate their ancestors. The Greeks, he says, the indelible possession of the Greeks is philosophy. What distinguished, in other words, the Greeks was philosophy. The indelible means a, a characteristic that cannot be erased. It, that, that in the past distinguished the Greeks, ancient Greeks and Byzantine Greeks. Um, being spread to the nations, it proselytized them and made them Greek while never ceasing to be Greek itself. Those who embraced it, those who spoke it, shed what was foreign and barbaric and put on what was Greek and noble. Greek philosophy was predestined to make all people Greek. So now we get close to uh, St. Nectarius' definition of what it means to be Greek. And St. Nectarius is not working under the assumption of 19th century nationalists or romantic nationalists who had a, a biological understanding of ethnicity. He's working on, on uh, according to an older definition of ethnicity, which ethnicity is basically a way of life. Right? Your ethnicity is your way of life. It's not just merely uh, who, uh, from whom you're descended, right? And so all throughout 
the history of the Greeks and of Orthodox civilization, um, this way of life was at the center of the civilization. Even the ancient Greek, in, in an ancient Greek times, it was possible in a certain sense to become Greek, to be Hellenized, by which they meant adopting the form of civilization that originated in the Greek lands in the, around the Aegean Sea. Um, and, and many peoples of the, of the East uh, embraced this civilization. Perhaps the foremost among those people were the Romans. The Romans embraced Greek civilization to the extent that they became almost undistinguished. They, they could not be distinguished from Greeks. And then they spread that civilization westward into Western Europe. And this is how Europe and Northern Europe, and this is how Europe formed, right? It was through the Hellenization of the Romans and then their spread of, uh, with their own sort of mark, spreading this civilization um, northward. The Romans, the Roman, you know, Latin uses a Greek script. Uh, Latin's um, grammar is organized according to the categories of Greek grammar. Uh, the Roman, Roman literature is an imitation of Greek literature. It's not an imitation, it's in imitation, right? They didn't just parody, but they added to Greek literature. The Aeneid, for example, is just a continuation of the epic cycle, right? Of, uh, um, it's, it's after the Iliad, right? Um, and Roman philosophy was squarely within Greek philosophy, especially Stoicism, which is a, a later um, philosophical movement. Right, the, some of the greatest Stoic philosophers were actually Roman politicians, right? Like Seneca and um, Marcus Aurelius. Right, the Romans became so indistinguishable from the, rather, identified themselves so strongly with Greek civilization that the Greeks themselves then turned around and is identified themselves with the Roman Empire, because the purpose of the Roman Empire was the preservation of this civilization the defense of this civilization. Roman legions, Roman legionaries were settled along the Danube and the Rhine in order to defend this way of life from peoples coming from Central Asia. Um, so let me get back to St. Nectarios. So St. Nectarios, his definition here is, is open-ended. This is not about biology, but this is about um, way of life. Um, and he's speaking historically here, though, because this is exactly what happened in history. Um, the, they put on what was Greek and what was noble, the Romans being the best example of that. But not just the Romans, there are other ancient peoples as well. Many Israelites, such as St. Paul, and others of that, of that generation, like Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, but also Egyptians as well, right? The, the, Coptic, for example, Coptic today is the, is the survival of ancient Egyptian. But Coptic is written with Greek letters and it has many Greek words in it because the Egyptians even um, identified themselves with this civilization eventually. Um, and St. Ictarius here is in the next sentence reveals the, the, the mystery of, of history, right? The, the meaning of history and the theology of history. Greek philosophy says, a born according to divine providence, pronia, 
pronia comes from the well the prefix is pro so it's beforehand and then the stem is noeo no to 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 ideate pre-ideation to pre uh no to foreknow um but also to provide in, in latin provide provideo to see ahead um and that's to provision we also have the word provision um so we have providence our ethnicity and ethnicity in general, our entire life, in fact, but in particular, the people that we're born amongst is part of the mystery of divine providence. God placed us in a particular role, in a particular place, in a particular family for the purpose of our salvation and for no other reason. Um, and if we're Orthodox, it's because of this. But also, there's also another aspect here to the, to the relationship between divine providence and nationhood and ethnicity. And that is that God has provided for these nations, for their salvation, but has also given them a role. St. Nectarios teaches that through this, that each nation has a role. Parallel roles, distinct roles. Um, in this case, he's talking to Greeks, so he's going to define what the Greek role is because he wants his people, his students, and his people, his nation, to live up to this. That the Greek was born according to divine providence in order to be humanity's teacher. This work was assigned to him. This was his mission. This was his calling among the nations. Right? Um, from the beginning to the end, to now. Never mind the fact that modern Greeks probably are not very good teachers in, in the literal sense. Many of them, not everyone is born to actually be a teacher, doesn't have the talent or, or the patience to actually be a teacher. Um, and that's not what St. Nectarios actually means. He doesn't mean that all Greeks have to be philosophers, whether they like it or not. Although it wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the, he's, he's saying that, that um, he wants his people to live up to the lofty standards of this philosophy, to even go beyond these lofty standards of this philosophy, and to become living examples. This is how you're a teacher, is when you become a living example. This is the mission for Greeks is to become exemplars of this way of life of self-knowledge of the knowledge of god exemplars for the love for wisdom seeking wisdom he wants them to seek wisdom so that then they could turn around and teach others to seek wisdom through their example or perhaps even through their words and in this case he's talking to future priests so i think he means to, for his students to also be able to do this in the next chapter, he's going to say this explicitly. They need to be able to do this with their words or else they can't be pastors. Um, his noble disposition bears witness to this. World history bears witness to this. Indeed, world history. Um, orthodoxy spread, of course, by the apostles who are not ethnically Greek, but who had acquired Greek culture to Greek cities. And from the cities of the Greek East, it spread to the West. Even the Western Church 
was Greek speaking for at least its first 150 years or so. Um, in Rome, Saint, Ir Saint uh, Irenaeus of Lyon was in Southern Gaul and all of his writings are, were in Greek. Uh, so the, the early church was, the, the gospel went to the West first in Greek with through missionaries who were either culturally Greek, Israelites who were culturally Greek, or actually even ethnically Greek. Then Eastern Europe, in the same way, Eastern Europe was evangelized by St. Cyril and Methodios, who were Byzantine Greeks. Um, and so this is born, what he's saying here is historical fact. Um, um, his longevity bears witness to this, from which we inevitably concern that he is eternal, not that Greeks are immortal. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking here kind of poetically. Um, but the connection between Christianity, Christianity, of course, is the way of mortality, and its truth is immortal. The truth of Christianity, the way of life of Christianity. And this, it's also connected to Hellenism. Hellenism is another word for Greek culture. But not just culture in the sense of food and dance, the higher forms of culture, the language, the literature, the thoughts, the way of life, that these thoughts, that the philosophy actually, Greek philosophy is part of Hellenism. That's the immortal, the eternal link. Um, I'm going to move forward here. Um, in section four, he reiterates the point the Greek nation was truly called to this purpose from the beginning of the world, and its formation bears witness to this. In his divine providence, God made this nation the eye for the body composed of all humanity. And as such, an organ in the body of humanity, the Greek was called to serve in the work of regeneration. So here St. Nicarius introduces a particular uh, topic that the Holy Fathers like to write about. And this is the preparation of the world for the gospel. We know that God prepared the world for the gospel through the old, throughout the Old Testament, through the, the, the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, the genealogy of Christ, which St. Gregory Paloma says that all the generations that are listed in the, in the, in the New Testament are actually the preparation for the Theotokos, who is the preparation for Christ. So we have a biological preparation, his biological line. We also have all of the prophecies of the prophets who by living the, the cruciform life, we had the Feast of the Cross a few days ago, who by living the cruciform life foresaw it was revealed to them the cross and who was on the cross and the true identity of the person on the cross. And so all the, rit the temples of the ritual, rather the rituals of the temple and the symbols of the temple were all a code. In fact, all of Israelite history is a code in which the identity of the Messiah is revealed if you have the spiritual eyes to see it. Right? The crossing of the Red Sea. Right? The and um, so we have this, these prefigurations in the history, in the rituals of the Israelites, and we have the actual biological preparation for the coming, for the incarnation of God. 
But that, and of course, that is the higher form of the preparation. But there's a parallel preparation that was happening outside of Israel. We have to remember the origins of human culture, first of all. It's not just about the Greeks. It's about humanity and human culture. The origins of human culture go all the way back to Adam. Remember what Adam did after he was created. He went around naming everything, giving words, assigning words to things. That's the beginning of culture. And the original human culture, which was one, speaking one language, um, was the, 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 the culture that, that, rather, it was, there was an orthodoxy there. Right? Adam and his sons knew about God, knew the true God. Adam had communed with God in paradise and had preserved the knowledge of God. That orthodoxy flowed into their way of life. But over the centuries, through the corruption of the human race by, by sin and the degeneration of human beings by sin, that knowledge was fragmented. The, the, it was diluted. In fact, it had to be all destroyed except for Noah. And with Noah, we have a, a new beginning. Who, of course, Noah is the, and the ark is a prefiguration of Christ in the church. And then again, Noah, who was Orthodox, had the correct doctrine, the correct beliefs, imparted those beliefs to his children and his descendants. And he had a restart. But then again, sin came into the picture, corrupted human beings, human beings degenerated. Right? All of the, Lith, uh, Neolithic peoples that inhabited the Americas, for example, or the Pacific or Australia in historical times, even to this day, those people are, have, are descendants of people that degenerated from that original culture that Noah gave his descendants. Um, but not just those people, we too. Um, but all of these cultures had some kind of fragment, some kind of memory. And those fragments and those memories became the stepping stones for many of them to return back to knowledge of God. So the Greeks had the concept of logos, right? As something that is like the, the, the word, it's spoken from the mind, but also the intention, the beginning, the principle of all things. The rationale of all things. The Chinese have a similar concept, the Tao. Um, right? So that's, that's a fragment, that's a leftover that's been smashed over the centuries by sin. But the Greeks had, the Greeks had this, this knowledge that was preserved in fragmentary form that they cultivated. And through the and through their reason, they um, began to investigate questions. The, their investigations um, are traditionally called natural philosophy. Right, Natural philosophy is the investigation of nature. It's the predecessor of modern science as a dis in the intellectual history of disciplines. And the, the purpose of natural philosophy, according to the ancient philosophers was natural theology. Natural theology is discovering God in creation. Um, 
And so in section five, St. Nectario starts to talk about natural theology, the natural theology that the ancient Greeks cultivated, starting from the little fragments of truth that they had left in their culture. They began to focus on those and use those as, as inspiration for understanding and, and seeing the world around them. Um, on account of his natural character, the Greek nation, of its natural character, the Greek nation truly emerged as such an eye, examining both those things that are manifest and those covered by the veil of mystery. It gazed in wonder at the beauty of the created world and sought its divine creator. Devoted to its beloved study, it discovered the divine creator in his creations. And the image of, of this divine artisan, traced by the finger of the creator on his creation, attracted and captivated it. The image of God is perceived on a small scale in the careful design of beings, as much as in the wondrous design of the tiny blossom, the most beautiful and delicate plant as in that of the greatest creations. Proceeding from infinite wisdom, the immeasurably the immeasurable variety of created things from the least to the greatest became a many-stepped ladder reaching up to heaven for the philosopher. When I read that, I thought, I've read that somewhere else. Where have I read it? I've read it in the lives of certain saints, St. Catherine, for example, who th through this process, pr precisely this process, came to the conclusion that the pagan gods, her ancestral gods, she was, from, she was from Egypt, but she was from Alexandria, thus a Greek of Egypt. Um, her ancestral gods, the myths about her ancestral gods, were completely false. Not only that, but the way of life, uh, the, 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 the ways of the world were somehow corrupt. Not only that, but even sexual contact was perhaps natural, but there was something beyond it. And she, she was preserving her virginity for, uh, on the basis of these intuitions, thinking about the beauty of creation and its creator, and how that beauty, how the beauty of God is much greater than human beauty. Um, and not just St. Catherine, many other saints, through the contemplation of nature, who were pagans, raised pagans, through the contemplation of nature, reached a certain intuition about who God is and, and what the nature of God must be, the creator of these things. This is natural philosophy. By daring steps, he steadily ascends its rungs, and looking to heaven alone, he is gradually raised up from the earth. And so we have, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have enough time. I, I encourage you, it, it's a beautiful description of the ascent of the human soul through natural philosophy. We know that God reveals himself in three ways. God has revealed himself in creation, and thus the pure soul can come to real conclusions about who God is, or at least about character, God's characteristics, by contemplating nature. Then there's the other, the second type of revelation is the inward revelation in the soul. When God reveals, God, when man is, because man is made in the image of God and is called the likeness of God, those who have pure image and attain the likeness gaze inwardly 
and see God in themselves. They don't see themselves as God, but they see God reflected in themselves. So the, the light, for example, that is depicted on icons uh, emanating from the saints is really emanating from the saints, emanating from their being. It's not their light, though, because their being is a reflection. It reflects like a mirror the uncreated energy of God, the eternal glory of God, which we are all made to reflect. Uh, Father uh, Dimitru Stanuluaya talks about uh, human beings be, being um, uh, capable, having a capacity to reflect God, to contain God. Um, homo, he says, homo capax divinis, um, man being capable of, is capable of God. Um, and so um, we have this ascent. Uh, rather, there's the second revelation. The third revelation, the third type of revelation is God in the flesh. That's the ultimate revelation. The literal revelation, the literal revelation of the word in the flesh. So we have these three. And of course, the first revelation is open to a certain extent, even to non-Orthodox. And it's there to bring them to Orthodoxy. The second revelation is open only to the Orthodox because only the Orthodox Church only Orthodox faith has the, the therapies and the, the, the methods uh, and the teachings to purify the soul. And thus, the third revelation is only open to the Orthodox again, because it's only the Orthodox who have the true doctrine of Christ, true knowledge of Christ, and it's only the Orthodox who unite with Christ in the Eucharist, in the liturgy. Um, so we have this movement from natural philosophy to natural theology. And then we get to section six. And, I, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, so we'll have to finish this next time because I want to have time for questions. Um, through philosophy, then, the Greek first learned of the existence of the divine and about himself, who he truly is. Through the knowledge of God, he attained perfect knowledge of himself. Knowing himself, he knows his relation to the divine, his nobility, and that becoming likened to the divine is his greatest duty. Remember, Senectarios keeps coming back to this, and I think in all of the essays, it's about, he comes back to self-knowledge. And remember, the ancient Greeks also were, this was at the core of their of philosophy. Socrates, the first thing that spurred him to philosophy was the, the if I remember correctly, and those of you that have um, I've been reading Plato. Maybe you can remind me. Um, he was he was led. He began his philosophical way of life when he visited Delphi, and he saw the inscription "Know thyself." Um, and "Know thyself" thus is the beginning of all philosophy. And that, in two ways, at least in two ways. One, because knowing yourself knows what you are. You know what you are. Know your nature and the dignity of your nature. Know yourself also is about correct conduct. Knowing your habits and correcting them. That's it's about repentance. And repentance is the, really the true philosophy. Um, 
So the ancient Greeks came to this uh, question, know thy, to, to this rather maxim, know thyself as the beginning of all of true wisdom. Um, so we can end here. We could, but let's talk about some of the topics between sections one and six, and then we'll continue next time. And then hopefully we'll also be able to talk about the final essay in the out in the volume we have in front of us. Yeah, talking about this uh, know thyself that you said. Uh, I just listened to the. Uh, and uh, one of the first was asking the other one, like, how can I stop judging? And then he said, uh, know yourself, you know, know yourself. Right. And then you stop judging because you start correcting yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you know, um, the human beings, are their their greatest problem? What is the greatest problem of human beings? That is delusion, plani. And plani comes in different forms. There is delu plani in Greek, delusion in English. Delusion comes in different forms. Delusion comes in the form of false doctrine, false delusions, seeing false visions coming to wrong conclusions. Because what is plani? Plani means being set adrift, going off into like outer darkness, outer space, right? Um, that's what plani means. That's, that's, it's a metaphor, in other words. Plani is like a, being wandering off into, uh, into the wilderness, off the path. It, it, delusion is a slightly different metaphor, but they, they mean the same thing. So we have these delusions, these theological delusions, these philosophical delusions. We could be cured from those. And in fact, Orthodox Catechism is the cure for all of them. But there's another, more subtler plani or delusion. And that's a delusion about ourselves. And that we have to fight. We have to fight. How do we fight the delusion about ourselves? Through self-knowledge. And what we have to understand is there's no end to our self-knowledge. Or at least you can't reach that end in this particular lifetime. Because God has created us, we're complex beings with such depth. We're, we're the macrocosm within the microcosm, right? We're the, the we are the large summary, each one of us, of the whole physical universe. We're greater. In other words, the value of each soul is greater than the physical universe. And the depth of, it, of each soul is as deeper, deeper than the physical universe. So there's no end to this quest, not in this life at least. We're not infinite though, so we can't be completely known. Um, but uh, the self-knowledge, knowing inwardly what moves our heart, protect, guarding our heart from the assaults of malevolent minds, human and non-human. And standing in the front of, of our heart and blocking those thoughts. But how do we block them? We block them by invoking the name of God unceasingly. Because the name, by, the name of the God, by the name of God, I wore them off. Right? I didn't, it's not talking about Philistines. He might be, but that's not his main point. The main point are demons. That's the, the, 
the, the book of Psalms, in fact, is a, a handbook for the unseen warfare, the warfare that happens internally. Um, but also knowing, seeing our sins and seeing our passions. This is why we confess we have to put names on these things. Once you put a name on it, you know it. That's the, well, it's not the only reason why. It's one of the reasons why we confess. We also have to admit this and verbalize it and then promise to God that we won't do it again. But the putting of a name on the sin is this type of self-knowledge. And it's the antidote to this self-delusion about the self. Because we, we're, we always want to think that we're greater than what we are, what we actually are. Um, this is called our vanity. Everyone has vanity to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and that vanity is the delusion about ourselves. So know thyself is fighting against our vanity, seeing all our faults. But we don't see, we don't dwell on our faults in order to, because people can take that energy that they, the, 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 the irascible energy of the soul, when they see their faults and turn it against themselves, that's called depression. That's when you get the, but depression is because of, because of pride that we become depressed. Because we take, instead of taking our, our the, the thimos, the irascible energy of the soul that God has given us to destroy evil, we turn it against ourselves and we destroy ourselves. Um, but the, the point is not just to dwell on what, on what we've done in the past. The point is to repent from what we've done in the past and leave it behind to take off the old man and put on the new. Um, in fact, the Holy Father that remembering the remembrance of past sins can in fact be dangerous as well. Knowing your sins and then dwelling on them are two different things. Right? Knowing our passions and then getting involved in our passions are two different things. Because then we, we could act it, it's the demons that activate our passions. We can activate our own passions as well. Because we have the same power, especially turned inward. Right, as the demons of suggestion and creation of images and so on and so forth. So it's the demons and us that are creating these thoughts. Um, but we, we have to stand, we have to know ourselves, know our sins, know our passions, fight our passions, and then block the access of the demons to our heart and, and of their thoughts. And you know this thing that's going on right now with COVID. COVID it, it's real, but it's also not real. Mm-hmm. real to, it, it's real to the extent that it's a virus that makes people sick. It makes some people really sick, uh, uh, but a very, very small percentage of the population. But what's not real is the hysteria, the complex web of thoughts. Thoughts determine our lives. Right? Thoughts determine, uh, our thoughts determine our lives. And these thoughts are wrecking our lives. Right? These thoughts are creating an, enti- they are an entire complex web that you can see that this is demonic by the discord that it creates. That people turn against each other and start suspecting each other. Are you positive or negative? And if you're positive, why are you standing near me? 
And if you're positive and you know you're positive and you're sending near me, I'm getting, I will physically harm you because mm-hmm. you're putting me at risk and so on and so forth. And people divide and families divide and people clash. People get sick, not from COVID, but because of COVID. Um, all of these things are created by demonic suggestion. And there's never been such a worldwide demonic suggestion in history. Never. Not even with the pagans. This is way beyond whatever happened in the past. Um, and so the demonic activity has become very thick lately. Very, very quickly. Although we were seeing a buildup for decades. Especially in the last decade. There's this buildup. St. Paul says, when, when you see... Um, that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, that the, the, the lawlessness becomes justified. When lawlessness becomes justified, not justified in the sense of, you know, people are making up excuses, but it, it's justified in the sense that it's seen as just. This is, you're in the age of the Antichrist. That's the sign of the Antichrist. When lawlessness becomes just that, and what happened in the last 10 years? We had gay marriage, for example, among many examples, <laughs> right? Lawlessness becoming justified, becoming, becoming the exemplar of justice. So, yeah, I saw this build up and it was intensifying. And then in 2020, it just came thick, just poured out in, 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 a, in a way that it's never has before, creating confusion. This is why Metropolitan Demetrius wanted us to fast last week. Because he's seeing the same thing. That, that this is something new. This is something bigger than that's, uh, that's ever happened before. Um, it's really um, something that out of, out of the apocalypse, really. Um, and I, I'm not saying that I'm enlightened, that I know how to interpret the apocalypse. But some, one of the things that are written, whatever it is in the apocalypse, whatever those those images are, one of them must refer to what's going on right now. Uh, St. John Maximovich says that, um, let me read you what St. John Maximovich says because it's really interesting. Um, I just happen to have it on the desk. Not just happen, I think it's divine providence. Uh, again, God provides these things. Um, so he says, um, so the whole world there's a long discussion about the Antichrist. And the whole world, he says, will be con- conquered by the Antichrist. And he will then reveal his hatred for Christ and Christianity. And then he asks, how will we see this? How will we know this? The answer, with spiritual sight, even now, righteous people see at death that which other people around them do not see. In the same way, the trumpets will sound in souls and consciences. Everything will become clear in the human conscience. Why did he use the word trumpets? Is he referring to the trumpets of, of the apocalypse, of the book of Revelations? Perhaps he's drawing on that image. But maybe it's not just poetic or rhetorical. Maybe he did see something. But... Trumpets will sound in souls and consciences. Many people think that, you know, we have to wait for some kind of theological argument 
to know what's going on in the world that we are uh, w- without the field there aren't you know you because we no one's made this argument yet successfully we're not in the end times or we're not in the age of the antichrist of course no one knows when the end will be other than god himself or when the antichrist will come other than god himself i'm not claiming to know that he's that he's here or not but what we see in front of us is of the antichrist but he's saying that it'll be revealed in the conscience the conscience of course is in the inner part of the soul it's it's part of the it's one it's a faculty of the mind and it's connect it's it's the faculty that rece- receives divine revelation because the holy fathers say that the conscience is like a book in which we receive divine revelations right and so the fact that we have all these orthodox all these pious people are intuiting that something really bad is going on right now you don't need to see an angel to tell you this uh, and you don't need to also make a theological argument to prove this something really bad is going on right now this is what saint john chrysostom is saying and we need to take take that seriously uh, and and our leaders need to take that seriously that all that simultaneously christians around the world orthodox christians feel this in their souls um so um yeah so i think the original question was about delusion and self-knowledge so self-knowledge also is important here in knowing the signs of the times without getting going down the you know the path of kind of analyzing the book of revelation exactly and finding thinking that we have the exact interpretation of it right? we have a vague because a, a holy saint who has divine illumination will be able to interpret the the, uh, the book of revelation with exactness we me i don't have this illumination so my feeling is a very vague feeling but i, I feel it inwardly something is really off Things are going sideways. If I may say one thing on that topic, yeah. go ahead. I was speaking with with uh, with somebody a, a year ago, and we're, the topic came up of the loyi, right, and uh, of how how these things are perceived by the by the saints. Obviously, uh, this comes from righteousness, and when I was reading. This commentary of Psalm 118, uh, I'm sure you have the text. Um, Theophon the Recluse? Theophon the Recluse, yeah, that's a good that's I, I was reading this text, and it's saying that even St. Maximus says that our physical senses are formed by the soul senses. And so when we purify our when we purify ourselves by the law, we get our senses of the soul opened. And obviously you can kind of get a feel of what those senses are because the mm-hmm. senses of the flesh are reflection of it. But it's exactly what you were saying. Like in order to see these things clearly, we have to be living righteous. And in these times, it I think it means really rejecting the philosophies and the worldviews of our, of our adversaries. Yes. I find it's a difficulty because today's polemic against the Christians is that why do you have to set so many barriers? Why are there barriers between us and you? Why can't we just have dialogue? And I'm, I'm understanding a lot that God 
put us here by providence, if he wanted us to separate ourselves, like I think there's a story in the Old Testament, uh, there's a, says, uh, you know, leave daughter from, uh, and uh, I will love your beauty. Leave your father's household and I will desire your beauty. You know, you know this passage? I mean, I suppose that this is our calling in the modern world. Um, uh, I was just thinking about this with what you said. I really, we have to follow the commandments to the utmost today because this is in the time of deception. I mean, usury, almost everyone's involved with usury. In the old, in the old times, whew, I believe it was, it was outlawed. All forms of usury were outlawed in the, old, in the old times. Is this true? Well, there was an attempt in the Byzantine Empire to, out, to abolish interest. Yeah. Um, but it didn't last long. They, they reverted back to it. And, um, but the interesting thing about the Byzantines is that um, you were required. So there was like a limit. And this is, of course, secular history, but that's okay. Uh, Byzantine uh, economic history. So the higher you were in society, the less interest you could charge. <laughs> because the, the, the understanding was that this corrupts people. Yeah. And the higher you were in society, the higher rank you had in the state and society, the, the, the less the, the government wanted you to be involved in money lending. Yeah. The lower ranking you, are, you were, the more you could charge in interest. Yeah. So that's as far as the Byzantines took it. But of course, our, the, the, the gospel says that we should not charge interest. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but you're right. We have to reject the philosophy of our adversaries. We should. We're also here in a particular time and place, and we have to be in dialogue with the people around us. But of course, that dialogue should not be for mutual appreciation. That the the dialogue should be for the sake of the truth. For it should be linear, moving from falsehood to the truth. Not for not circular for the sake of, uh, uh, of of mutual appreciation, which is what ecumenism is about. So I think we reached the end. Does anyone have any more uh, questions or points? Because it's, it's about ten o'clock. I was just going to ask you one thing. Um, yeah. You spoke about philosophy. Um, what is the difference between that and true wisdom? Well, philosophy, the word itself, so. It, is um, the love of wisdom, so it's the pursuit of wisdom. So it's the path. Whereas, or at least it's the desire to, to attain wisdom. Whereas wisdom itself, um, in, the, in the theological sense, of course, is the, is the, word, the same as the word of God, the union of God, divine okay. revelation. Um, and so, and so f this is St. Thaddeus's point that these philosophers they understood a few things but at least at least they got some things wrong but at least they had this desire to find wisdom they had this love philo philo in greek modern greek it's philo right the kiss um but in ancient greek it's philo which is to love to love philosophia there's a prefix then philosophia is the love of wisdom that's the difference. Now, there are humanists. What is humanism? Humanism is basically making philosophy an end in itself and never gaining wisdom. 
going around in circles in philosophy, just studying what philosopher, what the philosophers have said for the sake of knowing what they said. So for, were the philosophers, were the philosophers, were they trying to gain true wisdom? Some were, others okay. weren't. Okay. Especially when you get to the modern philosophers, they're usually trying to demolish what the ancient philosophers were saying. So it's a destructive project, modern philosophy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, somewhere and somewhere, but humanism is about just like staying at, at the first step and just perseverating at the first step. And so it's, it's not really philosophical at all. Real philosophy, true philosophy, is the quest for wisdom. And the, true, the real philosophers, the genuine philosophers, the ancient Greeks, of course, they had philosophers, but the genuine philosophers were the Holy Fathers who okay. attained wisdom. And the real philosophy, the true philosophy, is the philosophy of the Holy Fathers, which is the, the, the path to wisdom, the real path to actual wisdom and the attaining of that wisdom. But the ancient Greeks kind of anticipated that. That's St. Nicodemus' point. Um, and then when they found the truth, they embraced it. Um, so we'll read more about that next time. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so I think we should wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for uh, thank you. attending today. You're welcome. And uh, we'll continue next week.